Found in the Baltic Sea to the Great Lakes, people worldwide have heard of blue-green algae and their blooms in the summer. The green scum that floats on the surface of all kinds of water bodies doesn't look great and can close beaches and waterways. Despite its name, blue-green algae is, in fact, a type of bacteria called cyanobacteria and can do a lot worse than ruin your summer holiday plans. Open your ears and mind, and let's chat about that. Welcome to GriffinCast, a podcast where we casually chat about science coming out of the College of Biological Science at the University of Guelph and how the work can affect lives around the world. I'm your host, Michael Lim. With me today is co-host Amanda Reside and special guest and postdoc, Dr. Rene Shah Mohamed Lou. We'll be chatting about Dr. Shah Mohamed Lou's recently published study looking at how the group of toxins known as microcystins affect rainbow trout and how this differs depending on whether the toxin is inside or outside of the cyanobacteria cell. We'll also discuss the severity of the hazards caused by cyanobacteria blooms. So, as a, like a quick brief for our audience and for both Amanda and myself, how would you describe your research? And I guess both the work done in the Frick Cell Labs and also in the lab that you're also part of in Washington, if that's correct. Yep. Yeah, Washington State University. Thank you so much for an opportunity to talk about all this work. So by training, I'm an ecotoxicologist, and my research aims to advance our broad understanding of human-induced environmental change on ecological and evolutionary processes in wildlife. So specifically, what I'm interested in, and it's a new emerging field of research, is this idea of pollution-driven adaptation, and it's being coined now as evolutionary ecotoxicology. So it's combining evolutionary ecology and toxicology together. And what it does is it seeks to understand the role of adaptation in organisms and what enables these populations of organisms to thrive in these anthropogenically stressed ecosystems. So with my postdoc advisors, John Frickcell at the University of Guelph and Seth Rudman at Washington State University, we've been testing the predictability and determining the ecological consequences of rapid evolution, both cyanobacterial species of like microcystis, which we'll talk about today, but also the aquatic keystone grazer species called Daphnia magna, which is an important food source for fish. Hmm. Um, and I've been doing that combining bench shop growth trials, mathematical modeling, and large-scale mesocosmic experiments to understand what is the rate, the genomic basis, and also the phenotypic consequences of Daphnia magna evolution in response to toxic microcystis. Wow, that's fascinating. So why did you decide to get into this largely interdisciplinary research. Did you expect to be doing this work? <laughs> uh, you know, it's actually a funny story um, because my PhD supervisor, Paul Sibley, who's in the School of Environmental Sciences, but ever since my undergrad, I've been a big fan of aquatic toxicology and I knew that he was a leader of this work in North America. So I always made it a point somehow at one point in the year to meet up with him and chat about it and then see if there's opportunities to work with him. I went on one of these U of G job banks and then I get this really shady email um, from a technician that wrote, come tomorrow at this time and bring your CV. I, and I showed up the next day and the guy was looking at me very seriously. And then he took a hard look at me and said, okay, I, I trust you and I'm gonna assign you to volunteer with this PhD student who happened to be supervised by Paul. And then while I was volunteering, Paul got this massive answer create grant to investigate multiple stressors in the Great Lakes system. 
And then the blink of an eye, I finally got to research what I was so passionate about from the beginning. I'm glad in the end it worked out, but it required some patience. <laughs> so you say that you've always wanted to work in aquatic toxicology, but was there like a key moment? I don't know, maybe you were fishing as a small kid. And you're like, oh, I love, I love this research. <laughs> and so you decided to do this kind of research, uh, microsystems and toxicology in the Great Lakes. Yeah, I think my fascination for wildlife, as nerdy as it is to say this, it was fostered by Pokemon. Um, uh, I was always interested. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's, yeah, I think, I think newer generations can, can relate to that. And I definitely, I had such a fascination with the concept of going into the grass or the seas and discovering wildlife. And I grew up in like Toronto and, and that I didn't get much exposure to wildlife in person. So it was through video games, but it wasn't so much a particular moment per se, it was more just my inspiration. I think it, to devote my career and life to this stemmed a lot from my parents, actually. And it, they t instilled in me this sense of duty to be of service to humanity and the world. And personally, I've always had this deep fascination with this notion that human beings are organic with the world and that our lives mold the environment. And it's itself also deeply affected by it. And that the one acts upon the other and every abiding change in the life of humans is the result of these mutual reactions. And then once I started at the University of Guelph, my studies and and then learn more about aquatic ecosystems and how we can directly and indirectly impact it. It, it just kind of all coalesced together and thought, wow, this, <laughs> my parents were instilling me then, although it wasn't directly about aquatic ecosystems, it makes a lot of sense now. To get into the study that you published recently that we want to talk about today, for our listeners, it was called Cyanotoxins Within and Outside of Microcystis Aeruginosa Cause Adverse Effects in Rainbow Trout. So to begin, I'm curious about your interests in microcystins. Harmful cyanobacteria blooms produce a myriad of different toxins. So what attracted you to studying microcystins over other cyanotoxins like the neurotoxin anatoxin A, for example? Yeah, great. Bonus points for knowing anatoxin. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> microcystins. It's the most widely studied of the cyanobacterial family. It when it was first detected and found to cause death in humans and wildlife, it had this name coined fast death factor. The neat thing or comparison between microcystins and another cyanotoxin like anatoxin, anatoxin has a half-life of one to two hours, whereas microcystins can live up to three weeks uh, in water without degrading. Mm -hmm. um, and its potential is, of course, it can um, reside for even longer periods if it's within a cyanobacterial cell and not lysed and free running in water. The species that produce microcystins like microcystis ceruginosa or microcystis, the whole family in general, they're cosmopolitan all around the world. Um, so it's been a big concern globally for freshwater ecosystems because they can impact our drinking water sources, et cetera. The other thing that's been really concerning for us is that climate change projections are saying that a harmful algal bloom event, maybe right now, it's a few days up to a week, a week and a half. By 2090, it could reach up to 39 days. So what's really concerning is that we know microcystis that produces microcystins actually do particularly well in warmer environments and they can outcompete other species of green algae. So I don't want to be dystopian about this, but it's a little bit frightening to think that, wow, they could actually dominate healthier food sources of algae for wildlife as we move towards 2090. So we need to be thinking now about what are the implications in present state and how does it impact fish like rainbow trout. 
So based on its categorization, being a neurotoxin for anatoxin A, obviously there must be other toxic effects of microcystins. So for our audience, could you briefly describe what some of these toxic effects are and what determines the toxicity? Is it like concentration, time, type? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so briefly, the mode of toxicity for microcystins is it's a liver toxin. So it accumulates in fish and humans, other mammals um, and wildlife, and it attacks um, the liver organism. How it does that is it inhibits protein phosphatases, which are really important for cell regulation. It causes necrosis, apoptosis, and then eventually it'll cause organ failure and death uh, in the organism at a high enough concentration. But there have been studies that have looked at these impacts, but those are not um, commonly occurring. So usually the kinds of effects you'll see, they're different between humans and wildlife. So for humans, um, some symptoms from ingestion of these toxins could be, you might experience abdominal pain or maybe vomiting and nausea, or even diarrhea or blistering around the mouth. Now with wildlife, there are, of course, like phenotypic effects that we can see from microcystin ingestion could be reduction in growth or capability to reproduce, or maybe you might see swimming behavior patterns or delay in hatching of fish embryos. But then the life stage of the organism in that respect is key here because the younger life stage you go, the impacts could be more pronounced than later life stages. So the study in question, cyanotoxins within and outside of microcystis, can you explain briefly why you think studying the differences in microcystin toxodynamics between intracellular, so inside the cell versus extracellular outside the cell is important? Yeah, for sure. It, it's really important that we want to emulate all instances where a harmful algal bloom event is occurring. I found that the bulk of literature was only investigating microcystins when it was in its extracellular form. So the way researchers have done this was either they forcefully ruptured the cells to release the toxin in the water, or they bought an analytical grade. And in several instances, studies were administering these microcystin toxins in fish by oral gavaging or intraperitoneal injection. And these aren't realistic um, with what fish experience in the real world. So aware of all of that, I thought we need to design an experiment that's novel and exposes fish in a way that they would naturally encounter blooms. So I thought one natural way is by balneation, where they're just swimming in the water where the toxins reside. Now, one analogy that's helped me understand the relevance of this work is comparing it to when a human being has a life-threatening event like a heart attack. When I think about like that deep literature search I did where everybody's looking at my extracellular microsystems, I liken that to when a human being has a heart attack, meaning that it's already happened, it's too late, and the bloom has released the toxins in the water and the impact has happened. I wanted to capture that moment, but I also wanted to capture a moment before mm. the heart attack happens. So what are the underlying sublethal symptoms occurring in the background understand when fish are in danger. And the data I found shows that fish are in danger in all moments of a harmful algal bloom when they encounter one. So that's why it was pretty groundbreaking for me to see that in all instances, we need to be paying attention to this problem. An interesting aspect of your study was that you chose to study the effects of microcystins both at adult and juvenile levels in fish. So you kind of touched upon this earlier, where a younger life stage might be more sensitive to microcystins. So in that case, do they provide 
additional insight into what the effects of microcystin toxicology is on rainbow trout. So using your previous analogy, kind of like not just looking at heart attack risk in adults, but also looking at it, say, in teenagers or even children. Um, and also considering the fact that you separated your age based on the size of the fish. Mm -hmm. So adults were about 300 grams and juveniles were about 50 grams. Do you think there's an effect of body size, age, or some combination of both body size and age on the effects of microcystins? Yeah, that's a great question. I definitely think it's a combination of both. Classic studies we look at are how in children uh, and teenagers, exposure to toxin is a lot greater than an adult. And the younger life stage you are, your organs are still developing and they're more prone to toxicity than an adult who has a fully developed mature organ that is better able, uh, capable to manage or withstand toxic insult. So I suspected that juveniles exposed to microcystins, there's probably going to be a more pronounced effect just based on my training in human toxicology, but also knowing that the size of the organism too does matter. So they're a small organism means there's less room to move for the toxin to move around, which means more potential for it to bioaccumulate. And it was pretty cool seeing how there was kind of this in the graphs, you see this plateau it's interesting too how in the kidneys there was greater amount in the juveniles than the adults and i thought that was really fascinating because potentially i mean i didn't if i had to postulate it could be that it reached a carrying capacity in the liver in the juveniles and then the microcystins went to the next detoxifying oh, organ okay. like the kidneys and then i think that's probably what was happening whereas the adults maybe were better capable to manage it and withstand it. And there was an accumulation, there was some distribution elsewhere, but there may have been other mechanisms that could allow it to depurate it out. So your team also made a point to use concentrations of microcystins that I believe were substantially lower than what previous studies have used. So can you explain for the people listening why you chose these particular concentrations and why that matters when you're studying environmental toxicology? I'm really glad that you're asking this question because it's been a pivotal uh, shift in my career as an ecotoxicologist. So a lot of my training has been, you know, develop your lethal concentration curves at which 50% of organisms die. And mm -hmm. I reached a point <laughs> where I thought to myself, but we don't want aquatic systems where 50% of organisms are dying. Like we should be thinking more 95, 99 like, percent are alive. It's this new area of research and uh, it's kind of, it's been illuminating for toxicologists to think about the role of sublethal effects. So intentionally I chose a level that was much lower, but naturally occurs in freshwater systems. So the reason I chose those values of 20 micrograms per liter and hundred micrograms per liter is because it's a range you would find in the environment. But it's also a range that is of relevance to organizations like the World Health Organization. So they have recreational guideline value for microcystins to protect humans, which is at 20 micrograms per liter. Now, fish are not going to stop swimming and say, oh, it's a beach enclosure because it's 20 <laughs> micrograms per liter. But I thought, like, we set these values for ourselves based on studies, but there are organisms, too, that live in these systems. And I think, well, if humans need to get out of the water at these levels, what's happening to the fish? Mm. So based on the results that you found, do you think that microcystins pose more of a risk to wildlife inside or outside of the cell? I know you 
talked about it a little bit. Building from that, how would that affect human users of these bloom-affected waters? Yeah, it's a great question. I definitely find that microcystins for, um, so I'm going to, I'll use rainbow trout and Daphnia as a comparison here. In Daphnia, when microcystins are within the cell, it matters more. Why? Because they consume the algae directly and it's, it's, that's a staple food source. In rainbow trout, when it was free running in water, the microcystins and extracellular form, it accumulated more rapidly and in higher amounts than the intracellular form. Now, that's not to say that both of them are not a risk um, to wildlife or humans. Um, and that was what was an important takeaway from the study was that even though it's accumulating higher amounts, when we look at the proteomics level, we're seeing that there's activation regardless of stress-related proteins. We see evidence of early stage evidence of formation of carcinogen, uh, carcinogenesis or oxidative stress, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so for humans um, thinking about this, like thinking about the environmental implications, a lot of our work, like if you go to like Environment Canada, they track blooms or on the US side with NOAA, they're tracking blooms. Bloom tracking tends to happen in the later stages. And my work is, and my work from this paper and moving forward advocates that we need to be tracking blooms as soon as the weather's warming around May or June and thinking about what could be happening in waters. Because the frightening thing about microcystis and microcystins are that it could be at levels that maybe visibly you don't see it, but it could be there and accumulating at this background sublethal levels, and it could be stressing out organisms. And I think about the recreational and angler hunters who are, and fishers who are out there, and they're not aware of the problem. And what are early warning systems or rapid early warning systems that we could develop to protect the general public, but also ultimately protect wildlife too? I had a curiosity, I'm not sure if you know this, but how do people know the effects of microsystems on humans? Is it just kind of like a accidental exposure? They go swimming like, oh no, I'm exposed. And people document the effects? Or is it like you can sign up and you're, <laughs> you drink a little bit of microsystems and see what happens oh, to you? Oh boy, no. Unfortunately, there's no sign up. There, there are a few things that unfortunately happened. So there was um, in Brazil, uh, microsystems got into uh, the drinking water or the water source that was used for dialysis of patients. And there was close to 40 deaths, I believe, direct evidence. Okay, we know it can kill humans for sure. Along the way, there's just been monitoring of symptoms um, in children, teenagers, adults from accidental ingestion. If you're, if you're out swimming in Lake Erie and you think, eh, you know, it's, it's not that bad. I'll just swim in there and see what happens. But then there are these symptoms developing. Usually they might report it if it's to uh, Help Canada or the U.S. equivalent. They might be reporting these symptoms. There's actually even new research that came out of Hans Perl's lab um, showing the aerosol effect. So, of course, hmm. microcystins, they don't, um, they don't end up in the air necessarily. But if you think about you know, waves and splashing, if you're living on the coast, there's potential that 
it's out in the air. And there's there is a pretty interesting paper that came out last year showing the impacts of microcystins, like it can accumulate in your nostrils, et cetera. So um, it ends up in places we don't expect to. And, and even if you're trying to be careful about it, now, I'm not advocating we have to start wearing masks at the beach, but just <laughs> just being aware that, <laughs> uh, yeah, just being aware there are different ways uh, in which it can um, accidentally accumulate in, in humans as well. Don't drive your motorboat through a bloom. Yeah, yeah. There, you know, one great piece of advice from Ingrid Kors, she is a revered uh, former World Health Organization scientist, now retired. She's critical to all the guidelines we follow. And she was saying that if you can't see your feet through the water, if there's a bloom, like you should be weary of being in that water. So that, that's one qualifier for um, the toxicity of a bloom. My work, on the other hand, is, you know, it's challenging that and thinking maybe you can see your feet. You could see the fish in there, but... I mean, we're seeing sublethal effects too, so. Also, you got me thinking, like, so if you're an angler and you catch a fish swimming in a lake that has algal blooms, if you cook the fish, do you break down the toxin enough or is it, are you just ingesting the toxin if you eat the fish? Very, very important question. Um, no, microcystins is uh, not destroyed by heat or boiling. Hmm. Uh, for all the uh, listeners on this podcast, you can Google the Toledo... 2014 uh, Ohio water crisis. And you'll find um, news clips like from PBS where, I mean, it's not shocking to us because we've gone through a pandemic now, but at the time it was shocking. You're seeing people running into grocery stores, supermarkets, getting bottled water because they the state declared emergency saying you do not drink, do not boil this water, microsystems is in there and it won't degrade by boiling it. Do not shower mm -hmm. in it. Um, so it was it was quite a crisis um, to find that. I forget the other part of your question, but it was really important. <laughs> it was if you if you ate like oh, say, yeah. a toxic exposed like fish, yeah, yeah. do you ingest yeah. the toxin so as well? This was a critical, I, I guess I didn't mention this, but part of my PhD work was uh, in collaboration with the Ontario Ministry of Environment, Conservation and Parks. So I did all my work there uh, and I worked with some of the senior scientists who are responsible for fish consumption advisories in Ontario. And one very important take home they always stress related to consumption of fish. And we know they accumulate other contaminants like mercury, mm. PCBs, et cetera, um, is that you want to separate out the organs from the fish before you cook. And, uh, you know, I've challenged that idea. I've said they, some scientists would tell me, Oh, but people know they fillet their fish before they cook. And I told them, well, you know, I know some, it's not necessarily true. I know some cultures are, you know, where people cook it whole and then they divide it up. The concern mm. for that for microcystins in particular is that if you're cooking the fish whole and you know there's large amounts of it in the liver, there's potential that it could leach out and go into other places you don't want it to go. So what the Ministry of the Environment encourages is before you cook, make sure you fillet the edible muscle tissue that we consume. It accumulates at levels that are not of concern for human consumption. Take that into mm -hmm. consideration. So I think as a researcher, we all like to think that we have the perfectly designed experiment, but obviously, you know, things don't always go according to plan or you end up finding something out that you completely did not expect. 
So if you could go back in time and change one thing about how you did the study, what you studied, how you did it, what would it be and why? Great question. <laughs> and the answer is the length of the study. Like, yeah, blooms occur for 96 hours. They can occur for shorter or longer. And I was saying, yeah, it's true. And I tried, I tried to you know, pinpoint the median between one to seven days, let's do four days. I took care mm -hmm. of it by the follow-up study that I spoke about in chemosphere, where we did one week of uptake and one week of depuration. So it was a two week long study. But in that moment, I was thinking, oh, it would have been really nice if it was a bit longer or we followed it with a period where those rainbow trout that were exposed would then be put in water only so that we could see how much of it could be depurated out. I mean, in the end, I mm -hmm. did that with a follow-up study. I could have averted using more resources, like more fish to answer that question. But yeah, that, that definitely, I think 96 hours, it was a good amount of time, but it could have been a bit longer. So I think that's enough questions for me and Amanda. We've bombarded you enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to take some from social media. Okay. So Amanda, if you will have our first question. Yes. All right. So this first question says... When I think of algal blooms, I think of pollution coming from farms or cities. Is there anything at the level of the individual that I can do to reduce how often this pollution runoff occurs? Oh, that's a great question. I think the biggest thing as a starting point we can do is we need to raise awareness about nutrient management. I think one thing that we can do to raise awareness is just understanding that there are tools created by OMAFRA, for example, for knowing the correct amount of nutrients to apply on the land. And there are these resources available um, that you don't need to necessarily over-apply nutrients. I find like it, this is a large level problem um, that needs to be tackled um, by industry and government, but at the level of community and individual, we need to raise more awareness about these new tools and approaches. And also I think just raising awareness that harmful algal blooms are happening and they are linked to nutrients. I think sometimes we just, I don't know, like pretend it's not happening. And yet every year when NOAA releases their mm. satellite imagery, we're seeing in the Maumee River, it happens <laughs> all the time. That's where it begins. And then depending on weather patterns, it can make its way up to the Canadian side of Lake Erie. Like the more the public understands and raises awareness about the connection between land and water. And, you know, along the way, highlighting studies like these that show sublethal effects, I think that would be motivation. My next question do algal blooms provide any benefits, even if they're short-term? I remember being told that algae in oceans produce a lot of the oxygen. Yes, great question. Oh, that's, this is a difficult one to navigate. There are blooms of cyanobacteria. There are blooms of diatoms, blooms of algae. Um, so it depends what bloom we're talking about. I will only speak to cyanobacteria. Um, and why it is a point of contention is there are species of cyanobacteria that are used as health supplements. There have been some preliminary studies, though, that have come out showing how this is a widely unregulated market. And um, you need to be really careful. So there was a study, I don't know if it was necessarily spirulina, but a variety of algae tablet supplements, and they wanted to quantify the cyanobacterial toxins. And what was shocking was the variety 
even within like you know among all these supplements so there were some that had none some that had very high amounts and then what it speaks to is because there there are some uh you know purported benefits um, but there are also risks that come with that too before we end do you have any final comments you'd like to make about your work and if our listeners only take away one thing from my chat today what do you hope it is i think it's really important for the listeners to know like our goal is Algo Bloom's researchers isn't to erase them. Like they're the reason we breathe. They also coexist with us. It, the manifestation, like of you know, the proliferation of these species, is a manifestation of an imbalance, an imbalanced relationship between humans and the environment. I, I want to end this podcast on a note of excitement. I think there's been such um, advancements in omics tools that by the year 2050, I can totally envision you know, you're, you're a child can take a little sample and then immediately get a lot of information out of that, which today it would be very expensive and time consuming um, to acquire. So bring it full circle back to the whole Pokemon thing. A small child can go adventuring. <laughs> yes. Collect the there sample. you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And even Pokemon is accounting for genetic variation. You're seeing differences mm-hmm. within species. <laughs> <laughs> And that brings us to the end of today's podcast. A big thanks again to our guest, Dr. Renee Shamohamadlou, for joining us today. GriffinCast is brought to you by your hosts, Michael Lim, and me, Amanda Reside, with editing assistance from Ian Smith. If you're hungry to learn more about more science topics, check out Scribe Research Highlights. That's S-C-R-I-B-E, Research Highlights, on the University of Guelph website at uoguelph.ca. Or you can follow us on social media at U of G CBS. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Music in the podcast comes from Upbeat. Details in the show notes. Until next time, stay curious. Yeah.